Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and here in D.C., Election Day is just around the corner. And before April 1st arrives, we wanted to explore how the issues in this mayoral campaign are playing out in neighborhoods across the city. So we sent each of our reporters to one ward of the district, and the stories they brought back run the gamut. From stories about where we live... A human is like an animal. We're going to find somewhere to live. ...to stories about how we get around. We have to figure out much smarter ways than everybody getting into their private SUV to move, you know, a mile down the street. Even stories about the air we breathe. I keep my windows closed year-round because the pollution comes in the home. So we're hostage almost. But first... Nine out of ten public school parents say an important factor in their vote for mayor this year is education. That's according to a recent poll by The Washington Post. And a key source of anxiety for many of these parents? Getting their kids into top-performing schools. The D.C. public schools use certain boundaries and feeder patterns to determine where to send students. But as Deputy Mayor for Education Abigail Smith points out, those boundaries and patterns are getting kind of old. We have not revised boundaries in a comprehensive way across the city since 1968. And during that time, there have been immense changes, both in terms of school supply, lots of new schools that have come online, both DCPS and and public charter schools that have closed, and then shifts in demographics in terms of where the population density is across the city. And while all of that has happened, there haven't been any comprehensive updates to the boundaries. So, as we've reported on Metro Connection in recent weeks and months, D.C. is finally reworking those boundaries, which will inevitably rezone certain neighborhoods to different middle and high schools. An advisory committee is expected to release a first draft proposal to working groups of parents and residents next month. The final plan will appear in September, though it wouldn't take effect until the following school year. So right now, things are kind of up in the air, and that has some families concerned including families in Mount Pleasant in Ward 1. The neighborhood lies at the eastern edge of the zone that feeds into Deal Middle School and Woodrow Wilson High School, two of the city's best traditional public schools. But both Deal and Wilson are bursting at the seams at this point, and many Mount Pleasant parents worry that under the new zones, their kids would be sent to the Columbia Heights Educational Campus, or CHECK, where the graduation rate is 58%, and Cardozo High School, where the rate is more like 38%. To find out more, hi, hi. Rebecca, good to meet you. Headed over to Mount Pleasant to the home of Hendy Crosby Kowal. We can sit if the table is easier. We can sit here. Um, we should sit anywhere where I can easily, you know, be sort of across from the three of you. Hendy has a fourth grade daughter at Francis Scott Key Elementary and a sixth grade daughter at Deal. Hendy and I were joined by Natalie Kentakos. I have two daughters, and they are four years old. Twins, actually. And they happen to attend Bancroft Elementary with the twin sons of Kenny Day, who in the 1980s was a student at Deal. But back then, Kenny says, Deal didn't exactly have the stellar reputation it has now. Everyone moved out after the riots of 68. So they had to cast a big net just to keep the schools open. And it was by no means a utopia. I, mean, I wouldn't send my kids to what Alice Deal was when I went to it. It was a dangerous school. I mean, this was 1983, 1984. It was a bit of the Wild West up there. So completely different experience than, than what is going on up there now. These schools were crumbling. So I think it's fantastic that all these resources have been drawn into Wilson and Deal and also all the other you know, elementary schools around there. Uh, but it wasn't always like that. 
there's a petition circulating among Mount Pleasant parents. And uh, some of the language says, if Mount Pleasant lost access to these top schools, then families would be discouraged from putting down roots here and move out of the neighborhood or the district entirely. So basically, isn't it sort of up to parents? If a school is struggling, if parents move away, are they really helping that school improve? So so it's only so much. I mean, and and I think when you take a situation like Bancroft, my hat's off to the folks who four or five, six years ago were sending their kids here and saying, no, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to go to the school. I'm, I'm going to go here. This is my school. This is my neighborhood. And, and these are the parents who are still really involved in the school and have fifth graders at the school. You know, I just, I can't thank them enough. They made the school what it is. And we're very much involved, but you can only do so much. Parents of pre-K to fifth graders still have a great deal of control in their family's lives. Families tend to be a little bit more intact at that age and a little bit more nuclear with extra support from grandmas and aunts and other people. And I I know I'm sort of making like big, far-reaching socioeconomic reaches here, but it just seems like it's easier to keep a school body and parents involved at at this young level. You get to a middle school experience, even in quote-unquote nice neighborhoods, parents tend to let their kids go on autopilot a little bit more, and it's up to them and it's up to their peers. And unless you get that high level of involvement from everyone at the school and in the school community from teachers and principals and the PTOs on down, it's just tough. In PTA meetings at Bancroft a couple of years ago, we said, well, why let's just make Bancroft the next Janney or the next Lafayette or the next Oyster. And I think in some ways we've succeeded. So shouldn't we get the reward of being able to go to Deal Wilson? We did our part. It's hard because I totally know what you're saying about the whole idea of improving schools by going to the schools. I just think it takes more than that. I think it takes kind of a critical mass of student body feeding in that's going to want to take it to the next level. But I think it's also an administration, and I think it's also the resources that are given to the school. So there's a lot that has to happen in order to get it to the point where I would feel that it would be in any way comparable to what we've got now. I hate to say that I don't want to make my kids the guinea pigs, but I don't. So it sounds like all of you are very much invested in the neighborhood, but there is a chance you would leave. I think that we would consider it. And I think we are invested in the neighborhood. I love living here. And the school has momentum really because more people in the neighborhood, both of the Latino or Hispanic Um, families as well as the non-Hispanic Latino families are going to Bancroft more. And I think think that momentum would be in jeopardy if the boundaries were changed. You know, we love our neighbors. We really do. We love our home. We've actually got a little patch of grass in the back and we're in Rock Creek Park. And I love Mount Pleasant and I love the diversity. And I love Bancroft and everything about this, but I love my kids more. And if it comes down to a situation where we're no longer going to be rolling up the deal and my kids are going to check or Cordozo, that is a non-starter, period. Those were Mount Pleasant parents Kenny Day, Hendy Crosby-Kowal, and Natalie Kentakos. We'll be looking more closely at Deal Middle School later in the show and asking whether its success can be replicated elsewhere in the city. In the meantime, to find more information about the new public school boundaries, including a timeline for the redrawing process, visit our website, metroconnection.org.
Our next stop in our State of the City show takes us to the Ward 2 neighborhood of Georgetown. A few months ago, WMATA announced plans to finally bring Metro to the area. But some folks in the neighborhood are asking, why should Georgetown's transportation options stop there? Joe Sternlieb is CEO of the Georgetown Business Improvement District, which recently released a Georgetown 2028 15-year action plan. Lauren Landau recently headed to Georgetown to ask Sternlieb about his organization's ideas for the neighborhood's pressing transportation issues. We're standing here right next to M Street. Traffic isn't too bad, but I know that is not always the case. You add a million people of population to a region, you add a quarter of a million cars or half a million cars, you're going to have a lot more congestion. So a lot of the focus of our 2028 plan is to figure out how to get people into, out of, and around Georgetown without using single occupancy vehicles. Can we make it easier and quicker to come by bus? We're getting the streetcar into Georgetown. It'll be coming to the Georgetown waterfront within the next four to five years. We're very excited about that. But we're looking for other things as well. We're working really closely with the city on the bike lanes that come in from the east. We're working on getting more bike racks put in all over Georgetown, more capital bike share stations in Georgetown. We really want people to walk. It's the healthiest way to get here. And we're looking for making the walk between the metro station and Foggy Bottom much more attractive into Georgetown. So we're really thinking about how do you move more people with less congestion. There is a proposal in there for a gondola, an aerial gondola to Roslyn, is that correct? There's a proposal to study the feasibility of an aerial gondola linking the Roslyn metro station to the western side of Georgetown. We've been raising some private money. We've got quite a bit of it raised. We're looking for public money to match that now. And we think it's an interesting idea worth worth studying. We, we know one thing about it for sure, and that is you can move more people more quickly with less friction and less expensively than almost any other alternative. Yeah, another very popular idea is the concept of Metro finally coming to Georgetown. Currently, people who want to visit Georgetown via Metro, they go to the George Washington University stop and they, and they walk over. Why have a Metro stop in Georgetown? How might this benefit local residents, visitors, business owners? I think Metro in Georgetown is a game changer, and a lot of folks have have called it that. What it does is it links Georgetown to the rest of the city and the rest of the region. There is a regional transit network that Metro has created, and Georgetown being off of that map has been problematic and isolating us. We're completely surrounded by national parks. We only have four portals in. It's not on the city grid. So what Metro does is it cuts through all that underground very quickly and brings people into and out of Georgetown. So I think the residents will benefit enormously to be able to get to the airport, to be able to get downtown without having to get in a car makes a huge difference to their lives. And I think that the workers, we have over 20,000 people who work in Georgetown, not having to bring their cars in will make an enormous difference to regional traffic congestion and local traffic congestion. So I think it's, it's great. I don't want anybody to you know, think that they're going to come out on Saturday and pick up a pizza because we've decided to put a, a metro station here. It takes, it's a big lift. Um, the estimates are about $3.2 billion for the tunnel that would separate the Blue Line, come across the river, service Georgetown, go all the way to Union Station across M Street, probably take 12 to 15 years to dig. So it's a while off, but we're working very hard to bring it as quickly as we can. 
Now, your plan, the Georgetown 2028 plan, that sets a, a bit of a different timeline for the metro, does it not? That's correct. WMATA has suggested 2040 for the metro here. We've suggested 2028 about a dozen years earlier. I think WMATA would be happy to do it earlier if they had the money to do it. With metro, with a streetcar, with, with bicycles, it, it'll help traffic. I mean, that that's part of the idea, right? The, the projection is that there are going to be a million more people in this region in the next 15 years and another hundred to 200,000 people in the District of Columbia. All those people can't bring cars. In fact, just to move those people around, if none of them brought cars, the number of cars you have on the street today may have to be reduced. We have to figure out much smarter ways about moving people around than everybody getting into their private SUV to, to move you know, a mile down the street. We're trying to be realistic about the future and planning for it. That was Joe Sternlieb, CEO of the Georgetown Business Improvement District, talking with Metro Connections' Lauren Landau. You can find more about the Georgetown 2028-15 year action plan, including proposals to spruce up K Street and build a bridge to Roosevelt Island on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, what makes a great school great? And can you replicate that recipe somewhere else? Every kid, every teacher, every building, every community is totally different. And you can't say, like, hey, we're going to take one school and then clone it. That story and more coming up as our State of the City tour continues here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and with the D.C. primary election just days away, we're taking a cross-ward look at the state of the city. We'll begin this next segment in Ward 3 in Upper Northwest. That's where you'll find two schools we heard about earlier in the show, Alice Deal Middle School and Wilson High School. Deal, in particular, has received a lot of praise this election season. But what's the formula behind the school's success? And can that formula be replicated elsewhere? Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza brings us some answers. This is what 1,250 students sound like. So this is Deal Middle School. That's Principal James Albright greeting students as they walk to class. Good morning. Ladies, good morning. Albright says a successful middle school needs to be structured, but also allows students the space to explore. Developmentally, they're at a different place in their lives, sort of shifting over from very, very concrete thinkers to the abstraction and sort of the independence they have in high school. And so middle school is a transition. Deal Middle School is located in a beautiful brick building in one of the wealthiest parts of D.C., Students in this school follow the rigorous international baccalaureate curriculum. They learn foreign languages such as Chinese and take art, music, and PE classes. 88% are proficient in math, 83% in reading. In addition, Deal has more than 60 after-school clubs to choose from. They run the gamut from anime to board games to cooking, jazz band, instrumental band. Students can participate in Science Olympiad, several musicals, even classes on the stock market. And there's more. Swim team, baseball, softball, volleyball, boy soccer, girl soccer, track and cross country. We have lacrosse, whatever we can sort of come up with. I'm willing to support. 
These programs have helped Deal become one of the most attractive options for DC families. In just five years, it's added approximately 500 students and currently houses one-fifth of all middle schoolers in DC's traditional public school system. Students such as Connor Yu and Charlie Mestrick say they love it. There are a lot of schools where students don't feel like they're having fun, but at Deal, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. People are really supportive about like things like sexuality too, which is nice because I have a few friends who have like come out be- about being gay or bi, and they're like really understanding. Principal James Albright is proud of what the school has accomplished, but says replicating its success is not that simple. Just saying, hey, we can take this and plop it down someplace and do the exact same thing is not necessarily accurate. Every kid, every teacher, every building, every community is totally different, and you can't say like, hey, we're going to take one school and then clone it. DCPS Chancellor Kaya Henderson agrees. Do I think that those various ingredients can be replicated? Many of them, yes. All of them, no. And I think Deal might be the model for some families, but it's not the model for all of our families. Deal is definitely not representative of DC's population. Just about 20% of Deal's student population is low income. Overall, in district public schools, it's more like 75%. This matters because research shows low-income children need a lot more help in school. They enter kindergarten knowing fewer words and are often behind in reading and math. They're also less likely to get help with homework from parents. These conditions put a lot more pressure on schools to catch them up. So how do low-income students at Deal do? When you separate their test scores, they don't do as well as the top eight public charter middle schools. Schools like DC Prep Middle School in Northeast DC. It's not in a very safe neighborhood. 80% of its students are low income, but 91% are proficient in math and 77% in reading. Everyone on the yellow team disagrees with me. Naya, share. At DC Prep, students excitedly raise their hands to answer questions in E.C. Ojabulu's fifth grade math class. Genius, they can't trick you guys. You guys are just too good. Neither the teacher nor students look up at visitors. It's part of what they call an unapologetic focus on academics. Cassie Pugment is the principal here, and she says DC Prep is relentless about focusing on just two things, academics and building character. They have a very long school day. They have an extended school year. They have two and three hours of homework every night after being up at school until 5 p.m., that's what we mean when we say we're unapologetic about it because we, we want families to know that that's our major focus. Students here don't have recess. Pergament says many years ago, DC Prep used to have many activities. Shakespeare Theater, we had ice skating and golf. In a sense, it spread us too thin because it, it made our focus as a staff and our focus with our families and our kids not on the right, the right things that we believe are the most important things to help them get ready to be in a competitive high school and to do well. She says she wouldn't replicate DC Prep in a different part of the city. I think the, the approach we've taken is one that works for our kids and their families. Students at both DC Prep and Alice Deal say they love their teachers, and it's clear both places have a lot to be proud of. But they are very different populations, and it's not at all clear how each school model would work in a different neighborhood with different children in different communities. So while the sentiment, Alice Deal for Everyone, sounds good, many educators say it's far too simplistic a slogan. 
to meet the needs of the range of children who study in DC schools. I'm Kavitha Cardoza. So clearly education is among the top issues in this year's mayoral race. But another hot-button topic, the cost of living. More than a 1,000 people move into the district each month. And as a result, we're seeing more competition for housing in many fast-changing neighborhoods, like Northern Columbia Heights in Ward 4. Martin Ostermule takes us there now to meet a woman who resisted the tide that swept many low-income residents out of the area. Ana Margarita Pineda has lived in the same building for close to 15 years. For most of the time, she turned to managers and owners when she had complaints about cold showers and holes in the walls. But now she's the one hearing complaints. She's one of the building's owners, after all. Yeah, why you not tell me before? In the living room or in the bathroom? Or in the bathroom and, and, and kitchen. Pineda is standing in the stairwell of her 13-unit building on Spring Road Northwest, talking with a Vietnamese neighbor about a leak in the roof. Last month, residents here closed on the sale of their building, becoming homeowners in a neighborhood of rapidly rising rents. They took advantage of a D.C. law that allows tenants a first shot at buying a building that's going on the market. For everything we were told, what was best for us was to fight to see if we could buy the building. It was the best idea because we were scared that if a buyer came, they would make a good offer and make improvements and repairs. But they would have raised the rent to a price that we couldn't afford to pay. Pineda came to the U.S. from El Salvador in 1989. When she moved into the building in 2000, the neighborhood was dangerous and her apartment was run down. But as a single mother who cleans offices at the Department of Interior, it offered her relatively low rent, about $1,000 a month, and a chance to pay her bills. In 2008, after a series of fires caused by a faulty electrical system, Pineda and her neighbors sued the building's owner and won. Once the owner decided to sell in 2012, the tenants chose to buy. Here in the city is too expensive, and we make very little and have few resources. The desire to stay here is to keep the low price so the families can have a good life. To buy, Pineda and her neighbors invoked the city's Tenant Opportunity to Purchase Act, or TOPA. It's one of the few laws of its kind in the country. TOPA is a law that was passed in 1980. It basically says that in most circumstances, not absolutely every circumstance, when an owner of a, of a rental property in D.C. wants to sell the property, they have to let any residential tenants have the opportunity to buy the property first. That's Elizabeth Elia, an attorney who specializes in affordable housing. She says the law is an invaluable tool, but not enough people know it exists, and that can have consequences. Farrah Fossey's with the Latino Economic Development Corporation, the group that worked with Bineda and her neighbors. And that's what we see a lot, is that because people don't know, there's actually additional protections when they hear, like, hey, here's a thousand bucks, you should move. Um, then they'll take that because it seems like mm. a good deal. So a lot of times it's just kind of combating lack of information, misinformation. Even when the law's invoked, Tenants have to organize quickly and find the money to purchase their building. It often comes from D.C.'s Housing Production Trust Fund, but the recession left the fund all but empty. Housing advocates say that during those years, fewer low-income tenants were able to use TOPA. Binet and her neighbors were all too aware of the realities. A building just across the street was put on the market at the same time and sold to a developer who turned it into luxury rentals. The starting rent for a one-bedroom apartment? $1,750 a month. They stayed focused. Siempre hay... 
la duda si en realidad vamos There was a always the doubt that we could succeed because there was always fear over whether people like us, people of few resources and jobs that don't pay us much, could actually do it, given that there are so many buyers that have so much money not only to buy this building. One is always with the fear that they won't be able to do it, but we were always clear that it wouldn't be good for us if anyone else bought. Now Pineda is the president of the cooperative that owns the building, and she's got another fight on her hands, getting the D.C. government to loan her the money to renovate the building. But even if the building needs some work, Pineda says it's home, and that's what matters most. I think it's something very satisfying to say that in this place I have memories, I have neighbors, I see them as family, a community that is kind. Everything is accessible, the schools, the stores, the buses. Everything is nice, and one gets fond of the place they live because it has great sentimental value, no matter that the building is old or falling apart. There's a history here. I feel happy. Housing advocates say other tenants could soon share in that happiness as D.C. has set aside more money for the Housing Production Trust Fund. I'm Martin Ostermule. And now to Ward 5 and the tiny neighborhood of Ivy City, where residents are in a kind of battle with city officials. At issue is a proposed parking lot for buses. But residents say the struggle is about much more than bus parking. Now, as environment reporter Jonathan Wilson tells us, it's about the quality of the air. Parisa Neruzzi, the executive director of the nonprofit group Empower DC, is walking me into the residential heart of Ivy City. We're at the corner of Capitol Avenue and Mount Olivet Road. Mount Olivet is a busy four-lane thoroughfare that carries lots of truck and bus traffic at virtually any time of day. Across it lies the neighborhood of Trinidad. On the Ivy City side sits the large but nondescript modern building that houses Bethesda Baptist Church and an empty lot where Neruzzi says some row houses were recently torn down. But she says Ivy City's place in D.C.'s economic spectrum is just as important as its geographic location. Where we are right now is we're on the precipice between still uh, being a low-income community that gets dumped on and suffers environmental injustice and being gentrified. That feeling of environmental injustice is, in part, what led Empower D.C. to file a lawsuit against the city more than a year ago. The suit asked D.C. Superior Court to halt the city plan to build a new bus depot in Ivy City. The judge ruled in favor of Empower D.C. and the residents, finding that city leaders had failed to adequately consult the Advisory Neighborhood Commission and avoided a mandated environmental study. Neruzzi says the bus depot plan was just the latest insult for a part of town where clean air seems to be at a premium. 
Ivy City is already home to a maintenance center for D.C. public school buses. And the city's Department of Public Works recently took over another swath of land on the southeastern side of Ivy City for parking and servicing its vehicles. It was already poor because of the traffic in the area, because we have extremely low tree cover here compared to other parts of the district. But now the city has concentrated acres and acres of additional trucks and buses that spew diesel exhaust in this area. A coalition of researchers from the University of Maryland, George Washington, Howard, and Trinity Universities has studied air quality in this neighborhood and says the main culprit is something called PM2.5. PM2.5 stands for particulate matter smaller than 2.5 micrometers in size, small enough to penetrate the deepest parts of human lungs. PM2.5 is also the main ingredient of smog and exhaust from diesel vehicles, trucks, and buses is a major source of the pollutant. Jacoby Wilson teaches at the University of Maryland School of Public Health. He says over the years, Ivy City has seen more than its fair share of heavy-duty traffic and industry. They share a disproportionate burden of these facilities right now. They share a disproportionate burden of, of diesel vehicles right now. So from an environmental justice perspective, you see that this particular community, many folks are low income, you know, a lot of people of color, they're differentially burdened by these hazards. We reached out to the mayor's office of planning and economic development, but officials there did not make anyone available for this story. An official we did get to speak with is ANC Commissioner Pettigay Lewis, who owns one of the newer houses in Ivy City. Lewis's 11-year-old daughter has asthma, asthma that got worse after the move to the neighborhood in 2011. And my daughter, at this point, she doesn't go outside. We have a beautiful yard. She doesn't go out in the yard, and I keep my windows closed year-round because the pollution comes in the home. So we're hostage almost. But the fight for Lewis isn't just about public health. Lewis's home looks out over the Cremel School, a historic red-brick Renaissance-style building that was closed in 1977. Ivy City residents have long been clamoring for a restoration of the building as a community center. And Lewis says it came as a total surprise to find out the city planned to use its parking lot for a bus depot. Myself and all of the other residents, we were shocked and just pretty darn hurt because we thought the neighborhood was being revitalized. The city moved forward with some construction even after the lawsuit was first filed, but progress stopped with the injunction. Both sides are awaiting a decision on an appeal filed by the city. But right now, the property sits as a monument to the gulf between what residents want and what the city intends. Empower DC's Parisa Naruzi remains confident that the Carmel School Building will reach its potential. She just hopes legacy Ivy City residents don't have to be forced out by wealthier constituents for that to happen. I'm Jonathan Wilson. In a minute, why the next 42 months are going to be quite the busy ones in southwest D.C. This is something that's going to change our community unlike anything we've seen since the late 1950s. Stick around. Our State of the City show continues here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. 
Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and as we continue today's State of the City show, we head now to Ward 6. Fascinating thing about Ward 6, it's the only ward to include bits of all four city quadrants. So you've got everything from Penn Quarter and Chinatown in northwest D.C. to Kingman Park and the H Street Corridor in northeast D.C. to Nationals Park and RFK Stadium in southeast D.C. to the waterfront in southwest D.C. And just last week, the Southwest Waterfront was the place to be as the city broke ground on a project that will inevitably transform the neighborhood again. So if we go back in the history of Southwest, we look back to the late 1950s and we see that Southwest was raised and we were blocked off. They took away the old F Street and they threw in a big highway. Shannon Vaughn wasn't in Southwest for the urban renewal that replaced row houses and shops with massive office blocks and high-rises and sent thousands of low-income residents packing. No, the Georgia native is just 30 years old and has only been here since 2009. And what made you want to move to this particular part of Washington? It finally felt like home. It was a small neighborhood, yet it was in the heart of the nation's capital. But as the editor-in-chief of the Southwestern newspaper, Vaughn has immersed himself in his neighborhood's history. In fact, he and I are, in a way, immersed right now as we sit in his spacious and kind of echoey four-bedroom condo on M Street near the waterfront metro. The building's monolithic concrete exterior is classic brutalist, the imposing architectural style that's come to epitomize the southwest of urban renewal. But the newly broken ground near 7th Street epitomizes a whole new southwest. What would you like to do? How about we do a little walk around the um, model? Okay. And you can we'll point around. out okay. what will be happening over the next 42 months. Okay. All right. Developer Monty Hoffman and I are in a what multi-room construction trailer near 7th and Water Streets. The main room contains a massive model of the $2 billion project his company, P.N. Hoffman, is heading up. The Wharf. All right, so what do we see here? Okay, what we're seeing here is a mile-long shoreline that uh, begins over at the uh, 14th Street Bridge near the fish market and goes all the way over to the Fire and Rescue Pier, which is near Fort McNear. In between will be hotels and office buildings, apartments and condos, restaurants and bars, not to mention a movie theater, a jazz club, and a concert hall with room for 6,000 people. But fear not, Hoffman says, even with all this development, you will still be able to see the water. This is the other thing, too, the departure from uh, the brutalist architecture and the land planning of the 60s, which is all auto-centric, and that's when the traffic engineers were left run amok, right? We're not about that. These are mini blocks with alleys and streets and view cones in between, all of them. So it's very porous. Hoffman's company was awarded the project in 2006. After three acts of Congress, approval from more than two dozen government agencies, and, I kid you not, hundreds of community meetings. In all seriousness, we have probably 500 public meetings over the past eight years. Phase one is finally on its way. It starts at 7th Street and extends northwest to the fish market. The fish market itself we want to preserve. We love the barges and the grit and the history. And so we want to embrace that and put on the land side a food market along with a distillery and microbrewery. Other Southwest standbys that'll stick around are Jenny's Asian Fusion Restaurant, Gangplank Marina, the largest liveaboard community on the East Coast, and Cantina Marina. In fact, they're not only going to keep that, but they're going to add another restaurant. So they're expanding, uh, so to speak. Philip's Seafood will relocate to L'Enfant Plaza, and the historic Channel Inn will make way for one of four new hotels. 
I recently met longtime Southwest resident Eve Brooks in the Channel Inn's old-fashioned lobby, right near Pier 7 Restaurant with its classic mahogany and red leather decor. Well, this has been a place where a lot of D.C. Pauls have gathered almost every night in the bar here. It had a nice restaurant. Reminds me of my first dates in the 50s and 60s. Brooks calls herself a 60s activist who continues advocating for low-income individuals, especially here in her neighborhood. To this day, we have the highest concentration of public housing in the city. So as we look at the plans to tear down much of what was built in the 60s along the waterfront and to redevelop it into a modern, bustling waterfront, those of us who came in in some way related to that 60s philosophy are concerned that not all the residents will equally benefit from this huge investment. The modern bustling wharf will of course include plenty of housing, roughly 360 condo units and a little more than a thousand apartments. But how many of those units will be considered affordable? Monty Hoffman says in phase one alone, about 200. And actually I would say we're doing one better. We not only have affordable housing, but we have workforce housing as well. So if you're a school teacher or if you're a firefighter and you're in the sort of middle income bracket, there's housing for that as well. And then there's a category we call unaffordable housing, right? That's market rate. But there is a nice mix. Back in that roomy condo on M Street, Southwestern editor Shannon Vaughn says a good mix is important. And he's eager to see what will happen when phase one of the wharf opens in summer or fall of 2017. Though he has reservations about how it might alter the character of his tucked away neighborhood in the heart of the nation's capital. This is something that's going to change our community unlike anything we've seen since the late 1950s. The great thing about Southwest is we know renaissance. We're not just about building new, it's about true rebirth. And we adapt to it while maintaining our history. Don't want to wait to see what phase one will look like? We have renderings of the entire wharf project on our website, metroconnection.org. Our next stop on today's State of the City show takes us east of the Anacostia River to Ward 7. It's a predominantly African-American ward, known for its historic neighborhoods, its suburban feel, and its relatively affordable real estate. As such, the ward has been drawing all sorts of new residents, new residents who want to get more involved in the community. But the desires of the new guard, shall we say, aren't necessarily melding with the desires of the old. Lauren Ober takes us to Pennsylvania Avenue Southeast, where tensions have been brewing. Pennsylvania Avenue east of the Anacostia River is a drag strip of gas stations, liquor stores, discount shops, and funeral homes. Then there's Ty Orchid's restaurant. It's easy to miss the low-slung brick building that houses Vernon Bagarat's restaurant, but some Ward 7 residents want to change that. Uh, we're looking at this wall right now because there's a, a mural that's about to go on the wall in the next week or so. This mural is being completed by a group of residents who had to spend their own money to make this happen. Maceo Thomas is a resident of Ward 7 
He helped spearhead a project to brighten up the Pennsylvania Avenue business corridor with a little public art. Two years ago, Thomas and another Ward 7 neighbor, Veronica Davis, submitted an application to the city's Murals DC initiative to put a mural on the west side of Thai Orchids. The pair thought an eye-catching piece of public art would be an easy sell. It was anything but. Thomas says Murals DC and its partner Words, Beats, and Life created a vibrant design that included a baby and a DC flag. Then it approached some residents for feedback. Somewhere along there, it was posted along one of the listservs, and then it became a huge fight. He is not kidding about that. A contingent of the wards more established and more vocal residents complained to the Department of Public Works, which oversees the city's murals project. After a heated public meeting, Murals DC pulled out of the Thai Orchids plan. We just felt like it was so contentious that we really were going to need more support than just saying, I approve. That's DPW spokesperson Nancy Lyons. We knew that it was going to continue to be a problem once the project started and once the project was complete. You know, at the end of the day, this is art. It wasn't worth it for a project that's supposed to be about beauty and unification. It was the first time since the initiative began in 2008 that Murals DC abandoned a project because of community objections. Nancy Lyons says most neighborhoods clamor for murals. I don't think people look at it as, well, we don't want that in our neighborhood. But I mean, last year, I didn't even have to go out and look for walls. And we just had people coming to us because they wanted the murals on their walls. The people who objected to the mural were folks like Barbara Morgan, longtime residents used to things happening in a certain way. I think before you go out and make these decisions that you're going to do this, you should inform the people who have been here and to see if they wanted to you know, have it put up. Because quite frankly, what they had decided they were going to put up there I was totally against it. Morgan has lived in a modest brick rancher in the Hillcrest neighborhood since the 1960s. She's civically engaged and has been a member of just about every community organization in the ward. And she does not take kindly to what she sees as carpetbaggers coming into her community and making decisions. I resented the fact that someone who did not live in this immediate community would come in and propose something and not let us know. Many of those who wanted the mural, like Maceo Thomas and Veronica Davis, are newer arrivals to the ward. Between them, Thomas and Davis have been in Ward 7 for about two decades. Both are homeowners, and both are active in community building. Davis says she saw the mural as the restaurant owner's gift to the neighborhood for supporting Thai orchids through some tough times, including an armed robbery that happened shortly after they opened. But others didn't see it that way. It was a sense of younger people, you know, making a decision without consulting people who have been here longer. Maceo Thomas says at the end of the day, this is not a story about a mural. It's about a process. It's about change. I mean, this isn't like some big, huge deal to me as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's a mural. There's murals all over the city. This isn't the very first mural that's happened in the city. But I do feel like there is a community, you know, of gatekeepers, people that you have to go and get permission, kiss the ring. What this indicates is that there's, there's, more, there's more voices in the community. Since the murals DC funding fell through, proponents of the project got a grant from the Kennedy Center and raised the rest of the $10,000 on their own. With the blessing of the restaurant owner, they're putting up the mural themselves. The artist who was selected was given the theme, Thai Orchid. 
and he came up with a piece that includes a tree with some roots. He described it as, you know, the roots of the community. Work is set to start on the mural in the next week, and Barbara Morgan is vowing to fight it any way she can. I'm Lauren Ober. wrap up today's program, we're going to stay east of the Anacostia River in Ward 8. For decades, Ward 8's been a place where you could buy a house for a fraction of what it would cost elsewhere in the district. But as Jacob Fenston tells us, that very well may be changing. It's early on a Sunday morning, and I'm riding around southeast Washington with William Alston L., a Ward 8 activist, and John Muller, a local writer and historian. You want to go up to Robinson Place? Oh, okay. We'll go take Stanton Road to Robinson Place. We head up the hill to a narrow street perched above Suitland Parkway. It's an entire neighborhood that's empty. Fourteen apartment buildings surrounded by chain-link fence, the windows covered with plywood. Look, William, you can see see somebody probably up in there. See how the board? Oh, you want to yeah. see, see if we can get up in there? See that opening of the fence down there? I bet you we can get in. You want to try one? Yeah, somebody living in here. Look, they didn't cut the fence. There's a gaping hole in the chain link fence, and the front doors are wide open. Knock, knock! Knock, knock! There are more than 200 empty apartments here. Some look like the tenants left yesterday. Look, Miss Anderson, 2711, apartment 302. She left her keys. <laughs> this is what Alston L. calls an abandonment. It's not that dirty. It's not a lot of feces on the, you know, nobody has been in here to defecate on the floors. So you sweep it out a little bit and you live. This would be great. This would be the, the best abandonment I'd ever been in because this, this is really nice. Alston L. was homeless off and on for 10 years, frequently finding a place to spend the night in abandoned houses and apartments. The human is like an animal. We're going to find somewhere to live, regardless if it's in a car, in a, a empty house. You have to, a person has to have some place to live. Muller and Alston L. have been visiting abandoniums around Ward 8 for a series on the website Greater Greater Washington and as part of work on a book about the area's history. Vacant properties are good for no one. You know, they, they generate no tax revenue for the city. Through, you know, property tax, there's nobody living there. It's a drain on the city. Across the district, there are hundreds of vacant buildings, many of them here in Ward 8 and many owned by the city government. Alstonell and Muller look at this blighted complex and all the people who are homeless are getting priced out of D.C. and say the answer is obvious. This is potential housing for thousands of people if someone would fix it up. Not too far away on W Street in Anacostia is a building that sat vacant for more than a decade an abandonment that Muller and Alstonell wrote about two years ago. But now the place is buzzing with activity. When we walk across this, you have to be careful. Jim Dickerson runs the housing nonprofit Nana Incorporated, which is in the middle of renovating this 24-unit building. We got one more to go up. These are going to be affordable units, but not rentals. The two-bedroom condos are being sold below market rate, starting at a subsidized $95,000. It enables people to build assets and wealth, equity. Traditionally in the country, that's how the middle class was built, and that's how people 
were able to move up the economic ladder. Dickerson is a pastor, and he speaks with religious zeal about the power of home ownership to help people stay in the city as neighborhoods change. You know, the waters are parting, the Anacostia River's waters are parting, and the forces of gentrification and uh, folks who are gentrifiers are coming here. I've lived through every neighborhood. I'm 43 years in D.C. I've seen every neighborhood change, and I know what's going to happen here. Ward 8 has the lowest rate of home ownership in the district. Just about one quarter of residents own their own homes, compared to 43 percent citywide. Dickerson says residents need to be able to buy into the neighborhood now so they can benefit from the coming changes. It's not just nonprofit groups that are fixing up old buildings. In nearby Congress Heights, I meet realtor Darren Davis with Anacostia River Realty. So this is a luxury condo with the hardwood floor, stainless steel appliances. For years, people have been predicting neighborhoods east of the Anacostia River would be the next to see the development that's been transforming other parts of the city. Before the recession, there was a small boom with developers snapping up old apartment buildings like this one and converting them to market-rate condos. But when this building opened in 2009, Davis says the units wouldn't sell. We offered um, no condo fees for a year. We offered to pay your bills for a year. These days, the market has changed, especially for single-family homes. Right now, I have more buyers. I mean, we are just swamped with buyers, people calling. Paulette Garner House is one of those buyers. She grew up in D.C. and has lived here most of her life. Now she's looking to buy in historic Anacostia. I've seen that that part of Ward 8 sort of be left behind and to see it becoming vibrant and growing. And I definitely want to be a part of the innovation. You know, who doesn't want to? But it hasn't been easy finding a place she can afford. The same house that was maybe four years ago, something I could afford. Nothing's changed about the houses, but just the supply and demand has changed. She's looking for a house that's under 300000 something that's pretty hard to come by anywhere in the city these days if you don't want to do lots of repairs. But she says she's not giving up. Like other first-time home buyers looking in Ward 8, she wants to get in on D.C. real estate while she still can. I'm Jacob Fenston. You can see photos of some of D.C.'s abandoned miniums on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Jacob Fenston, Gavitha Cardoza, Lauren Ober, Lauren Landau, and Martin Ostermule. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau was our editorial assistant. Our intern is Tyler Daniels. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. This week we also heard from local musicians Show Pony, Why Told, The B-Side Shuffle, Star FK Radium, Drop Electric, Buildings, Sands U, and Cigar Box Planetarium. We have info on all the music we use on metroconnection.org. Just click a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection or by subscribing to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll shine the spotlight on the past, present, and future of Silver Spring. From how the area got its name 
to the redevelopment of its downtown, plus the long-playing power of vinyl in Maryland's fourth most populous place. It was a great city for us to be in, and we knew it would be a successful store, and still is. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. Thank you.